Welcome to another edition of Headlines from the Left. I'm Kent Garrett. It is Friday, February 3rd. Coming up, the debt ceiling stalemate continues. A $114 billion drug company scam. And is it a good idea to end the COVID-19 emergency? The debt ceiling stalemate continues. This follows Wednesday's White House meeting between President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made a dangerous threat. Here's Brian Tyler Cohen to explain. You, the White House said that the president's open to a, talking about the debt ceiling in a separate discussion about ways to control spending. I mean, do you, what do you think about when you hear that, that they kind of want to separate those two? Is what they say. Which, whichever way they want to talk about it, I'm very clear. We will not pass a clean debt ceiling here without some form of spending reform. So there'll never be a clean one. I don't know how they want to say it. That's fine. But at the end of the day, we're going to get spending reforms. I, I believe you have to lift the debt ceiling. But you do not lift the debt ceiling without changing your behavior. So it's got to be both. And both. Yes, sir. And there you have Kevin McCarthy vowing not to pass a clean debt ceiling bill, opting instead to demand conditions be met. Now, before we cover anything else, I just want to make it perfectly clear exactly what it is that Kevin McCarthy is gambling with. If the debt ceiling isn't raised, as it's been done for over 100 years without fail, we risk destroying the full faith and credit of the United States, domestic and global markets, and the stability of the U.S. economy. Just note here that the U.S. has hit its debt limit, and so the Treasury Department is now using what it's calling extraordinary measures to meet its obligations for a limited amount of time, but that'll only get us to roughly June of this year. If the debt ceiling isn't raised by then, we'll see our economy crater and the dollar's position as the world's reserve currency put at risk. That is the fire that Kevin McCarthy is playing with here. Just want to be super clear about what Republicans feel entitled to do once they're given even an ounce of power. So the solution here is obviously a clean bill raising the debt ceiling. But what we know, and what was just reiterated by McCarthy, is that Republicans won't do that because they see this as their only opportunity to hold the economy hostage in exchange for some concessions. Now, the term McCarthy is using here is spending reform, which is a shiny new phrase that replaces the old phrase of entitlement reform, which means eliminating Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. That was obviously too unpopular for Republicans to repeat, and so instead they just sanitized the title and once again began threatening cuts. But hey, I'm sure nobody will notice. So what does spending reform mean? Well, it turns out that Kevin McCarthy was asked about exactly that, about what he would cut from the budget to achieve those spending cuts, and here's what he had to say. Where should those budget cuts come from right now? Medicare and Social Security, the White House insists Republicans want to cut. What cuts do you want Well, to let me be clear about that, and I've been clear many times. No, we're not talking about that. And to really be able to do this right, I'm not going to negotiate this in the press, right? I respect the conversation we had together, and we will continue that. In other words, he won't tell you. So Republicans went from admitting out loud that they want to eliminate Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid to just now not telling you what they want to eliminate. Why? Because they know that whatever they land on isn't going to be popular. And so instead of being forthright about their own agenda, they'd rather try to enact that agenda behind closed doors because they know that whatever it ends up being, it's going to be bad. Not for nothing, but when you're too afraid to admit what you're going to do with power, you're probably doing it wrong. 
By the way, this isn't even the GOP's first foray into offering up policy positions under the umbrella of spending reform. They also tried pushing for the Fair Tax Act, which would eliminate the IRS, all personal and corporate income taxes, the inheritance tax, and the payroll tax. And all of that would be replaced by a 30% national sales tax, which would be a gift to the ultra-wealthy. Because instead of collecting income tax commensurate with your income, which for the wealthy is a lot, Instead, they'll just slap a flat tax on all items, which means every time you want to buy a shirt, a meal, a roll of toilet paper, eggs, it would cost 30% more. And so now it's not the wealthy being taxed based on their income, which is disproportionately higher than everyone else's. It's everyone else, the working class, that carries the brunt of the tax burden because something, something working class. And think about the effects of a law like that. Our tax revenues would absolutely plummet, which would mean less funding for programs that people rely on to survive, which means people pay out of their own pockets and have less disposable income, which means less spending, and that'll contract our economy. And because we'd have leagues less tax revenue, our deficit would get even more lopsided, which means it would be impossible to shrink our national debt, which is that thing that Republicans pretend to care about, even though all of their political policies actually make it worse. There is no planet on which the elimination of of all income and corporate taxes being replaced by a flat sales tax does anything other than drive our deficit through the roof. And so while Republicans crow on a daily basis about fiscal conservatism, in reality, they don't care about that in the slightest. Their 2017 tax cut exploded the deficit and led to the biggest contribution to the national debt in history. And now, five years later, they've gone right back to pretending that they care about getting our debt under control while simultaneously introducing legislation that would only serve to explode it even further. You could fly a 777 in the space between what Republicans say and what they actually do. So what's the solution here? The solution is to listen to Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz. He said, quote, in exchange for not crashing the United States economy, you get nothing. You don't get a cookie. You don't get to be treated like you're the second coming of LBJ. You're just a person doing the bare minimum of not intentionally screwing over your constituents for insane reasons. That's all. This is not a negotiation because once you let the hostage takers know that hostage taking is an effective strategy, they'll employ it again and again and again. And it may have worked for those Republicans by withholding their speech votes until they could exact their concessions, but Democrats aren't nearly as weak as Kevin McCarthy is. And so if you want to know what Democrats should give up in exchange for not cratering our own economy or our own currency or our own markets, the answer is absolutely nothing. So we have until about June before Treasury's extraordinary measures run out. Hopefully by then we'll find out what it is that Republicans are even looking to do if they've deigned to allow us to know by then. But regardless of what scheme they cook up, I hope that it's met with the exact same response by the Democrats, which is that there will be no negotiation for a debt ceiling increase. Because while Republicans might find joy watching things burn to the ground, the rest of us don't. But with the next general election looming, it'll be important to realize the damage and suffering that Republicans are willing to bring if they're given any power at all. That was a report from Brian Tyler Cohen. Journalist Kyle Kalinske now has the story of a $114 billion drug scam. You know, one of the stories that doesn't get nearly enough coverage in the U.S. is just how much of a scam and a ripoff our pharma industry is. So uh, one of the stories that stuck with me ever since we read it was there's a, a cancer drug. It's for a specific kind of cancer that... Um, it sells for about $200 in the UK. You know what it costs here in the US? About $38,000. So, the, I mean, this is, it, it's criminal, right? Especially when you learn that for the past two decades, 
every single medicine that has been developed has been developed with taxpayer money at universities usually. So in other words, taxpayers pay for this, the research and development, a drug is created to help people, then Big Pharma swoops in there, buys up the rights, the intellectual property rights, and then sells it back to us at a massive profit. And they price gouge us uh, at the same time. And so, look, I'm not the brightest dude in the world, but that appears to me like we just have a giant mafia ripping us off for life-saving medication. That's what it is. And so, this is one area where the answer is very straightforward. Nationalization. There shouldn't be for-profit big pharma entities. It should be totally nationalized. And that would fix the problem literally overnight. You just have to get rid of these parasites. Like, how much do these CEOs make? Some of these CEOs make tens of millions of dollars every single year. For what? For what? For jacking up the price of something that was made with taxpayer money. Anyway, look, I digress. There's a new article that just came out from the New York Times. And um, this details the problem. How a drug company made $114 billion by gaming the U.S. patent system. AbbVie, for years, delayed competition for its blockbuster drug, Humira, Humira, however you say it, at the expense of patients and taxpayers. The monopoly is about to end. So let me give you some of this here. They say, in 2016, a blockbuster drug called Humira was poised to become a lot less valuable. The key patent on the best-selling anti-inflammatory medication used to treat conditions like arthritis was expiring at the end of the year. Regulators had blessed a rival version of the drug and more copycats were close behind. The onset of competition seemed likely to push down the medication's $50,000 a year list price. Instead, the opposite happened. Through its savvy but legal exploitation of the U.S. patent system, Humira's manufacturer, AbbVie, blocked competitors from entering the market. For the next six years, the drug's price kept rising. Kept rising. Today, Humira is the most lucrative franchise in pharmaceutical history. Next week, the curtain is expected to come down on a monopoly that has generated $114 billion in revenue for AbbVie since, uh, just since the end of 2016. The knockoff drug that regulators authorized more than six years ago, Amgen's Amgevita, will come to market in the United States, and as many as nine more Humira competitors will follow this, year's, this year from pharmaceutical giants including Pfizer. Prices are likely to tumble. The reason that it has taken so long to get to this point is a case study in how drug companies artificially prop up prices for their best-selling drugs. AbbVie orchestrated the delay by building a formidable wall of intellectual property protection and suing would-be competitors before settling with them to delay their product launches until this year. The strategy has been a goldmine for AbbVie at the expense of patients and taxpayers. So let me explain a little bit about, about what they did here. So what they do, the way a, a, like a generic works or a biosimilar works, a generic drug is, so you take the original version of the drug, you tweak something about the drug that's like irrelevant and doesn't really change what the drug does. Like you tweak the chemical makeup just a little bit, but in a way that doesn't ruin the efficacy of the drug. And so since it's not exactly the same, then you go, hey, it's a different drug, even though it's similar and it, and it fixes the same problems. And now we're going to sell that and we're going to, you know, undercut the competitor and sell it for much cheaper and then... You know, that's how you get competition, you get better prices, and people get the treatment that they need, right? So that's how a generic would work in theory. So what they did in this instance, what AbbVie did with Humira in this instance is they would get ahead of their competitors, they would tweak the formula themselves, then they would patent that too. And then they'd say, look, if you sell this, we're going to sue you, 
and we're going to win because they were exploiting the, the intellectual uh, patent laws. And so eventually what ended up happening is the other drug companies were like, hey, you know, you can't really do this. This isn't fair. You're cheating. But AbbVie responded and said, well, what if I what if I cut you in on our colossal profits? What if I give you a percentage of our colossal profits? So in other words, let us exploit this loophole. Let us destroy the people who need the medicine. Watch as they go bankrupt. But we'll give you a percentage of our profits. And then you need to put off selling your generic drug until 2023. And remember, I believe this drug was created in 2002. I think they go on to say that in the article. So now we're talking, what, over 20 years of this. And this article is explaining how, look, this just is, is coming to an end now. But who knows? They probably have other tricks up their sleeve, right? But this has already gone on for way too long. I mean, look, when you look at this, it's hard to agree with intellectual property laws as they exist up front anyway. Because it's like, if you have this thing that works... And the people who are selling it are charging 80 grand and people can't afford it, then this system is just broken. The system's not fair. The system's not just. The system is going to leave people behind to die or suffer simply so this company can make a profit. I mean, it's psycho stuff. It's psycho stuff. And look, keep it real. This is how capitalism works. Because all they care about, first and foremost, is the profit. That's all they care about. Everything else is ancillary. So anyway, that's the gist of what goes on in this article. Let me go, I want to I wanna scroll down, I want to get to, and they go on to give some more numbers here about um, the price of the drug went up 60% to $80,000 a year. They're just arbitrarily jacking it up and doing whatever the hell they can get away with. Um, I want to give you the individuals who were impacted by this so you know the human toll, okay? So that's deeper in the article. Some Medicare patients have been suffering as a result. Sue Lee, 80, of Crestwood, Kentucky, has been taking Humira for years to prevent painful sores caused by a chronic skin condition known as psoriasis. Her employer's insurance plan had helped keep her annual payments to $60. Then she retired. Under Medicare rules, she would have to pay about $8,000 a year, which she could not afford. Quote, I cried a long time, she said. For months, Miss Lee stopped taking any medication. The sores came back with a vengeance, she said. She joined a clinical trial to temporarily get access to another medication. Now she's relying on free samples of another drug provided by her doctor. She doesn't know what she'll do if that supply runs out. Barb Terran, a book buyer in Brook Park, Ohio, plans to delay her retirement because she is worried about Humira's cost. Ms. Terran, who takes Humira, Humira for Crohn's disease and colitis, has never had to pay more than $5 for a refill of the drug because her employer's insurance plan picks up most of the tab. The cost, according to a pharmacy app on Ms. Terran's phone was $88,766 in the past year. Ms. Terran, who turned 64 in March, would have liked to retire next year, but that would have meant relying on Medicare. She fears that her out-of-pocket costs will spiral higher. Quote, when I look at the $88,000 charge for a year, there's no way, Ms. Terran said. AbbVie executives have acknowledged that Medicare patients often pay much more than privately insured people, but they said, they said the blame lay with Medicare. In 2021, to a congressional committee... In a 2021 testimony to a congressional committee investigating drug prices, AbbVie's chief executive, Richard Gonzalez, said the average Medicare patient had to pay $5,800 out-of-pocket annually. AbbVie declined to provide updated figures. He said AbbVie provided the drug for virtually nothing to nearly 40% of Medicare's patients. The drug's high price is also taxing employers. Soon after she started taking Humira, uh, Melissa Anderson, an occupational therapist from Camdenton, is that Mo uh, Montana or Missouri? I think Montana. Uh, no, Missouri, whatever 
got a call from a human resources representative at her company. The company directly covers its employees' uh, health claims rather than paying premiums to an insurer. The Humira cost was costing the company well over $70,000 a year, more than Ms. Anderson's salary. The HR employee asked if Ms. Anderson would be willing to obtain the drug in an unconventional way to save money. She said yes. As soon as March, her company plans to fly Ms. Anderson, 48 years old, to the Bahamas so a doctor can prescribe her a four-month supply of Humira that she can pick up at a pharmacy there. Humira is much cheaper in the Bahamas, where the industry has less influence than it does in Washington, and the government proactively controls drug pricing. So that's the that's like the little cherry on top at the end here, is that other countries don't deal with this. Other countries tell the tell the drug companies like, yeah, this is what you're gonna charge. This is what it's gonna be. Okay, that's it. Because this is too important to just leave up to you guys, because clearly you're gonna price gouge everybody in sight, and screw them over. And so now this poor lady had to go to the Bahamas in order to get it done. So the impact of pharmaceutical money in Washington, D.C. is protecting this system that I just described to you about how everything's a scam. They're a giant mafia, Big Pharma is. And they're ripping everybody off. That was a report from Kyle Kalinske. Finally, a few days ago, the Biden administration announced that it was ending the COVID-19 public health emergency. But is that a good idea? Or is the administration just bowing to political pressure? PBS News has the story. Since the start of the pandemic, both former President Trump and President Biden have repeatedly renewed a special declaration of a national and public health emergency. But the government's approach toward COVID has dramatically changed. And yesterday, the president said he would allow that emergency declaration to end in May. William Brangham looks at what that will mean. Amna, um, this is the government essentially saying that COVID-19 isn't as grave a threat as it once was, and thus certain policies can be phased out. House Republicans have been pressuring the administration to make this exact move. But COVID is still killing more than 500 Americans every single day, on average, and has cumulatively killed well over a million of us. Joining me now is Lawrence Gostin, who tracks all of this very closely. He's at Georgetown University's Global Health Institute. Um, Larry Gostin, great to have you back on the program. Uh, I mentioned the GOP pressure on the administration. House Republicans just introduced this bill called the Pandemic is Over Act, which would basically do what the administration says they're going to do. Do you think the administration wanted to do this, or is this bowing to political pressure? You know, I think it's a little of both, William. I mean, certainly all emergencies have to come to an end, and we've been at this COVID emergency for three years now, you know, originally um, with uh, President Trump uh, declaring it in January 2020. Um, but there has been enormous pressure. I mean, it's it's certainly from Congress. It's from Republican governors. It's from the public that just seems to be so fatigued and over COVID. And even from its own agency, the Food and Drug Administration is planning on cycling to seasonal COVID shots the way we do flu shots. So all of this is a, a political, a strong political signal um, that we need to move on. But we need to do we need to have a soft landing. And I think that's why the administration has put this back until May 11th. So practically speaking, when the government says that the public health emergency is over, what does that mean? What what follows? Well, you know, first we have to be clear that 
you know, the crisis is still here, and particularly for the vulnerable. You mentioned more than 500 deaths a day. You know, that's, you know, twice the average uh, flu season, but that's in a severe flu season. Um, we've got, you know, COVID exploding in China. We've got variants and subvariants um, that are on the horizon. And so for the young and healthy, it may be older, over, but for the vulnerable, it's not. What this is going to mean is, is that it's going to unravel a whole uh, social safety net. Um, people will find it harder to get health insurance, particularly Medicaid, um, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Veterans Administration benefits, and even private insurance. It'll start to cost money um, for tests, therapeutics, and ultimately for vaccines as we transition uh, to the private market. That means that the uninsured, the underinsured, the poor um, are going to really lack access the way they've been accustomed to doing it now. CDC is going to have a lot more trouble um, getting um, data from the states and doing surveillance. Um, and there's also implications even for Title 42, which is the program that expels asylum seekers coming to the United States. What is the implication for Title 42? Because I know that this has been another one of these political hot potatoes that has been fought over. Uh, you, you, if you declare the emergency is over, does that change Title 42 in any real way? You know, it actually does. Um, Title 42 itself is not dependent on a declaration, a formal declaration of a public health emergency. But if you actually look at CDC's original order, the order says that it stays in place until CDC decides to take it down or until a formal declaration of emergency is over. So on May 11th, like it or not, um, Title 42 is gone unless for some reason CDC would issue a fresh order. CDC won't do that because my understanding is CDC has never been in favor of this because it's really not justified by public health. It's really more a border control um, policy and, 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 and an inhumane one at that. You wrote on Twitter that this is the equivalent of waving the white flag of surrender. Uh, do you really think that that's the case? I mean, given, as you're describing, that Congress has kind of done this, the American public has certainly decided we're done with this. So what are we surrendering to? You know, I worry that when um, the next variant or subvariant comes, um, that it has more immune escape uh, ability, um, perhaps even more um, pathogenic or, or deadly. Um, that when CDC says put on a mask or get your booster shot, um, that people's eyes may roll. And I think it's fine for the young and the healthy, but I really worry about the poor, the uninsured, those with you know, deep underlying health conditions and vulnerabilities. I think they are at grave risk. And that's what really worries me the most. I do understand and I agree with um, President Biden, that all emergencies do eventually come to an end. But I wish we would be able to have a safe landing in the sense that we really protect the health care insurance and social safety net um, for the most vulnerable among us, because they're still at grave risk. That was a piece from PBS News. And that's it for this edition of Headlines from the Left. 
I'm Kent Garrett. Thanks for joining us.